Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This 140th episode of Community Sanctorum is titled, The End. When I first set out to do this podcast, I had no idea that it would become what it's turned out to be. I'm not tech-savvy. I know next to nothing about the internet. I depend on the skill of others to help with the website, podcast distributors, and all the rest that goes into doing a podcast. When I began, I thought that maybe a couple hundred would join the journey. To have as many subscribers as we've had, and to be nominated for the podcast awards, is way beyond anything that I could have anticipated. So thanks to all of you faithful CS subscribers. You've made the journey a rewarding experience. This episode brings this season of Communio Sanctorum to an end, but it's not the finale of the podcast. We've come in our narrative to the end of the 19th century and broached the early years of the 20th. At this point in church history, the trail splits off into literally hundreds and then thousands of different directions, far too elaborate and detailed for the goal of CS, which was to provide a flyover and brief review of the story of the church. Season two will be individual episodes and short series going into more depth in people, places, and events. And I'll have more to say at the end of the episode. High school students in the United States learn about Manifest Destiny in their U.S. history courses as juniors. Manifest Destiny was a late 19th century political idea that the United States was divinely appointed to occupy all of the North American continent. It captured the imagination of many Americans and was fueled by politicians and journalists. But the America that Manifest Destiny believed was ordained by God to cover the continent, well, it had a special flavor. It was white and Protestant. That is, Northern European white and Protestant. Hardcore Manifest Destiny advocates went so far as to say that once the United States of America had claimed all of North America, it would spread its influence over Central and South America as well and bring the blessings of the American system to the rest of the world. But there was trouble in America. The Civil War may have helped end slavery, but it did not bring about racial harmony. On the contrary, things got worse in the South following the war. The large numbers of European immigrants flooding U.S. shores in the North put pressure on urban centers, which saw people of various ethnic communities banding together for mutual support, exacerbating an already fragmenting society. The melting pot was leaking, and quickly. Southern European immigrants faced a hard time of discrimination, and as settlement moved west, Hispanics also faced it. Josiah Strong, the General Secretary of the Conservative Evangelical Alliance, announced that God was about to bring forth a, quote, final competition of races, unquote, in which the Anglo-Saxons would prevail because they had the, quote, best form of government, the purest expression of Christianity, and the highest civilization, unquote. So they would fulfill their God-given destiny of sweeping aside weaker races, assimilating worthy races, and shaping the rest so as to, as he said, Anglo-Saxonize humanity. Now, if that sounds a bit like the maniacal ramblings of a failed Austrian artist with a tiny mustache and a bad haircut, you know where you've heard those claims before. But Josiah Strong made them several decades before Hitler. And while he was what we'd call a conservative evangelical, there were oodles of more liberal Christians 
who held precisely the same ideas because they were all caught up in the idea of manifest destiny. But these ideas contrasted strongly with the reality of the United States itself, especially in the urban centers. Immigrants were exploited and lived in horribly overcrowded conditions. They had virtually no contact with organized Christianity, especially that of the Protestant form. When Protestant leaders realized they had no presence in some of the neediest places of their own country, well, they went to work to remedy the situation. The Young Men's and Women's Christian Association was imported from England and set up chapters. Sunday schools were established and were such a hit that many churches ended up having a more vibrant Sunday school program than their other functions. The camp meetings that had been such a boon to the frontier were imported to eastern cities. Mass meetings and revivals became a major part of the urban religious scene. The central figure of these revivals was a shoe salesman from Chicago named Dwight Lyman Moody. Moody knew the USA considered itself a Christian realm, but saw precious little religion in the sprawling metropolis that he called home. He began bringing the unchurched to his church, but when it became clear that the leaders there weren't interested in ministering outside the sphere of their own members, he began an independent work. He got involved with the YMCA, where his zeal for evangelism was recognized and encouraged. While visiting the headquarters of the YMCA in London in 1872, he was invited to preach for the first time. The response moved him to take up a preaching career, focusing on the masses of urbanites in England and then in the U.S. While Moody was innovative in his methodology for conducting mass meetings, his message was a simple presentation of the gospel with a call to repent of sin and put one's faith in Christ as the only Savior. He was sure the best way to improve the condition of the urban poor was conversion. So while he concentrated his efforts in large cities, he was loath to speak out against social ills. He'd rather spend his time and effort lighting candles than cursing the dark. His success spun up many imitators and soon revivals became part of the American religious landscape. The challenge of addressing the plight of urban poverty generated new movements and denominations. Methodists in both Great Britain and the United States observed that their denomination had become quite middle class, neglecting the poor, which they regarded as a departure from the teaching of their founder, John Wesley. Since it was among such that the movement had been birthed, they sought a return to their roots. In England, this impetus gave rise to the Salvation Army, founded by Methodists William and Catherine Booth. The Salvation Army was known for its work among the poor, providing food, shelter, and employment to the needy. Because the condition of the poor in the U.S. was similar to England, when the Salvation Army arrived there, it found a ready mission field. Another group to emerge from the Methodists at this time were less concerned for the poor, but no less concerned for another distinctive that had been prominent in Wesley's ministry, the call to sanctification. The holiness movement was born out of a desire to recapture and reinfuse this central fixture of primitive Methodism. At first, there were many disconnected groups that comprised the holiness movement. Over time, they consolidated into a few denominations, the largest of which was the Church of the Nazarene, which began in 1908. A leading voice of the holiness movement was Phoebe Palmer, who in 1835 began leading women's prayer meetings. A few years later, men joined as well. Then she took her show on the road, preaching and teaching all over North America and Europe. 
Palmer advocated sinless perfection, that it wasn't just possible, but rather that it ought to be the goal of all believers to achieve absolute moral purity. And of course, she wasn't without her critics, even from within her own denomination. She founded the Methodist Ladies Home Missionary Society, which brought relief to some of the most deprived urban areas of the United States. Her work, along with many others, contributed to what later became the American feminist movement. Worship in many of the independent holiness churches was filled with a new energy and vitality unseen and unheard in most of the older denominations. Meetings would occasionally see what was called an outpouring of spiritual gifts, things like speaking in tongues, prophecies, miracles, healings. And while all such went by the wayside in most churches after a few years, in 1906 they re-emerged in spectacular fashion at the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles. The first glimmers of something unique happened among a small group at a house of one of the members on Bonnie Bray Street. The leader of the movement was Pastor William Seymour, a former slave trained by a Pentecostal minister named Charles Parham. As the little group prayed, the Holy Spirit moved and people began speaking in tongues. More wanted to attend, but the house was too small, and so they moved to the Azusa Street Mission. From there, Pentecostal fire spread to the rest of the country. There were both whites and blacks present at the Azusa Street Revival, so the work spread in both groups' churches. It quickly spread beyond its Methodist roots to include Baptists and others. In 1914, a gathering of Pentecostals, as they were called, saw the birth of the Assemblies of God denomination. Eventually, other Pentecostal groups formed. Most were eager to alleviate the suffering of the urban poor. When that task seemed to be largely addressed, an initiative of international missions was launched. The vitality and innovative inertia of Pentecostals fueled a new wave of world mission that saw Pentecostalism become a main feature of the world Christian movement and global Christianity. And, well, that's it for now. If you want more of Communio Sanctorum and the history of the church, give season two a try. Of course, there is a lot of material that we didn't cover. That's where all of you aspiring podcasters can <laughs> buy a microphone, install a recording and editing program, and, well, go to town, filling in what I've left out. Over the years, not a few subscribers decided to listen to the sermons and Bible studies that I share as the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Oxnard. You can check out those by going to calvaryoxnard.org or doing a search for Calvary Chapel Oxnard on Apple Podcasts. And a last announcement. I'm about to start a YouTube channel where I'll do a video version of Communio Sanctorum. Since I began the podcast, the video venue has, well, it's simply exploded, and so I'm going to be stepping into that soon. Okay, well, that's it. Thanks so much for being a part of the journey. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.